morning. Oh, wow, there we go. Okay, I want to welcome everybody out today. Um, we are currently still in our Grow with Grace series, uh, and in this series, it's, uh, we're just going to be looking at some important attitudes and convictions about faith. We're going to make that screen bigger so I'm There we go. Uh, and this series uh, is kind of coinciding with one of the greatest steps of faith that we've taken as a church. Uh, and that is, we are this capital campaign we are currently in for the new campus. Uh, we're raising money for this new campus. Uh, and this series just reminds us how important it is to have the right attitude and have the right uh, strength of our faith if we go into a project like this. Um, now, a few things about this I wanted to tell you. I've been so excited to tell you this. But um, a few things. First of all, you do have cards in your seat, uh, commitment cards. And we'd like, if you haven't gotten one yet, take one. If you can turn them in by the 11th, that would be great. That's next week. But uh, so far, now remember, our goal is 600000 Let me explain that. Uh, we're getting 600000 in commitment for over a three-year period. So that, you know, not that anybody made one $600,000 commitment, unless you want to. In which case, you can't. But over uh, three years is how long this commitment takes. Um, so the 600000 is one-third of the total building cost. So actually, do this, that's a lot of money, right? So we set the goal at 600000 and the, remember, the cards aren't due for next week. The majority of people have not seen the cards in. Uh, as of this number, there's 23 cards coming in. Okay, and as of right now, we have $461,170. Uh, so, we're right around the corner from it. I'm really, really excited about that. Um, and I personally believe we're just going to blow that number out of the water. I really do. I'm confident in that. So, I know people hear that and they think, wow, we already have 600,000 on that. No, that's not how that works. It comes monthly and we see how that may be. Okay, that being said, I, I should have brought that in first. Now it's all wet down from there. But, okay, last week, last week we discussed prayer in a message called Revealed in Prayer. And today I'm going to be discussing uh, the power of a tried and tested life of faith. So I titled this message today, Live in Faith. Let me explain that. Um, a house doesn't feel like home until you've grown accustomed to living there. You know what I mean? And when you've lived there a while and you've gotten used to it, and you have this lived-in comfort and confidence, right? Uh, that's kind of what I'm comparing you to. See, stagnant faith is left untested. It's, it's empty. It's like a house before moving. It's just empty, right? But faith that has been tried and tested is familiar and comfortable and confident. Uh, and those who have lived in faith... Um, I mean, they sacrificed their own will and turned to God's will, and also lived in faith uh, as a trusted faith because it has proven effective time after time. So that's kind of what we're going to be discussing today. So let's jump in. We're going to start in 1317, uh, starting in verse 8. It says, When the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, and he goes to Zarephus, uh, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephus. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sick. And he called to her and said, Please give me a little water in the jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour uh, in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks, and I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and eat it and die. Okay, so when Elijah came to where the Lord had directed him to go, he finds this widow, and he asked her for food and water. Now, remember, God sent Elijah there, so he had the comfort of knowing that I'm here for a reason. God doesn't send us someplace unless there's something for us to do, right? 
So he knew that there must have been some way he could impact this woman's life, right? Because it would be strange just walking up to someone and going, hey, how you doing? Getting a glass of water. You know what I mean? I don't even like my own wife with that yet. But anyway, so remember, that's where God wanted him. It's also important that this woman was at the brink of starvation. This woman and her son were at the brink of starvation. She was actually convinced that her and her son were about to eat their last meal. She was convinced that this would be their last meal. And that's why she said, I'm gathering these two sticks and I'm going to go in and prepare for me and my son that we might eat it and die. See, at that time, there was a real bad famine in the region where Elijah lived, right? And during famines, usually the poorest ones were the ones that ran out of food first, were the poorest people, which made sense. Well, the widows, they were the poorest of the poor at that time. You didn't get much poorer than widows at that time. And so it didn't really make sense that God would send him to the poorest of the poor during a famine with a hope of seeking sustenance. We're talking to the poorest of the poor. Most people would have said, she's already out of food, right? That's who he sent him to. So it just didn't make sense. But God often works best in what we deem difficult situations. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. He always works in our situations that we see as difficult. See, he does that so people will see his powers in a way that's so obvious that they can't explain it away. When he works in difficult situations, people see that and they know that it's God moving in that situation, right? And when you have one of those situations, you ever had that situation where you just know this is a God thing? Anybody ever had that situation where you're like, this is a God thing. This shouldn't have happened. Literally, it's happened to me so many times. When Jenny and I first got married, we were broke and we were far from it now. But I remember one time we were looking and it just didn't work. You ever get at the end of the month and look at your bills and go, how have I lived all these years? Anybody ever done that? You just look down at your bills and you're going, by these figures, I should have been dead a long time ago. We were looking at these figures and I remember saying it was like $129.30 is what we were short. And I remember thinking to myself, it's no big deal, I'm not going to worry about it. You guys are going, $139. It was a different time, okay? What am I saying? That's still a lot of money to me. But anyway, and like the next day, it was the weirdest thing. Like the next day, I was just going out to get the mail. I wasn't really thinking about anything. And I went through it and I had overpaid in my escrow and it was $128. Something like that. I just fell over it. Walking into the house, I'm like, this is such a God thing. I mean, who gets a check for $120 some bucks? You know what I mean? So this happens in our lives. He does it in difficult situations so people see it and go, wow, I know that's a God thing. He loves performing miracles where people just can't explain it away. Now, when Elijah asks him for water, it seems easy to help, you know, despite his situation. It's a good sign, I'd say. But have you ever noticed something else that's strange about this situation? God sent him to a widow who are the poorest of the poor, and the poor always run out of food first. And not only did he send him to a widow, he sent him to a pagan widow, a widow who did not honor his God. And we know that by the way she discussed God. Remember at 13, 17, 12, first part there? But she said, as the Lord what? Your God. As the Lord what? Your God. Your God. She separates herself from that God. She says, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread. So, I mean, the way she used that word lets us know she didn't have a relationship with God. But Elijah eased her fears by telling her, listen, God sent me here, and he wants to bless you. This is your opportunity to get to know this God. He sent me here. Look at this, uh, 13, 17, 13. Then Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and be as, uh, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake uh, from it first and bring it to me. And afterwards you may take 
take time for yourself and for your son. You know? Do I need to say anything about that? Right? I don't even know you. Can I have water? Sure. Okay, make me bread. Well, that's the last bread we got. Then we're going to starve with. Great. Go make it and give it to us first. Give it to me first. Okay, that's what, that's what he's saying. Verse 14. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. Because there was a drought at that time. In that time. Right? Um, so, he went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she... Uh, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoke to Elijah. So Elijah basically said, if you are willing to trust my God as a provider, if you're willing to, possess, to just trust him to take care of you, if you will lay down your fear and your doubt and put God first, he's going to make sure you never go without. But the first step requires you stepping out and trusting him. Okay, this is a very, very, very tough situation. Now, I'd imagine she probably heard a ton of promises from all the pagan gods in church. Probably to know of it. Right, I mean, here she is starving, so really, we go to Right, so I imagine she heard a ton of promises that were broken uh, by religious figures. But for some reason, what, I, what Elijah was saying rang true to her. Right? I mean, think about this. She had given up so much on all her gods and all her things that she had embraced death. She was at the point of embracing death. And to tell you how serious it is, how desperate does a mother have to be to just conceive the death of your child? I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just me and my Western, you know, arrogance, but I'm thinking I would take a stone if I had to and kill something to make sure my kid ate, wouldn't you? You know, so think about this. How low and how desperate you have to be well, you're at a point where you say, I'm done. I'm just going to eat this meal, and me and my son are just going to sit here and wait to die together. That's, I mean, talk about perfect ready for the pickings by somebody. This woman was at her very rock bottom. She literally had nothing to lose. Now, notice he asked her to make his bread first. I mean, make his bread first, and then you can have some for yourself. I mean, think about that for a second. He asked this woman who was starving to death and ready to see her child die, let me have your last meal and you take the time. It's basically what he's saying. Let me have your last meal and you take the time. And something moved in this woman to where she accepted that. That tells me at that moment she must have believed in his God. I think at that moment his God became her God. Because the only way I can even imagine someone conceding the food out of their child's mouth to someone they don't know is through faith I can't even understand. Right? You talk about faith. Something rang true with this man. The word of God rang true to her through this man because she did uh, what he asked her to do. And so you talk about putting God first. I mean, we are never more like Jesus than we put God's needs above our own. That's when we're most like Jesus. Right? Now, self-promotion and selfishness of, of any kind, just in general, are the polar opposite of godliness. Think about it. Abraham, Moses, the disciples, Jesus, they all gave up everything for God. They had that mindset that lived in faith. He's proven himself to me. I'm surrendering to him. And as a result, all those people I mentioned, this is the few, were blessed beyond belief. And this woman was no exception. She did exactly what Elijah told her to do. And as a result, she was never going to have to be hungry. The jar was never going to run out of flour. I mean, this is just unbelievable, right? Now,
a tough question because when I was sharing this message, I actually asked myself this question. But have you ever asked yourself where God falls in your list of priorities? That's a question a lot of us don't want to ask. But have you ever sat down and took an evaluation of your faith and said, where is God in my life of faith? Where does, he, where does he show up in my life of faith? When we prosper, when we plan, when we make decisions, do we consider God? Ask yourself that. Right? Before asking God to move in our lives, do we consider what we do for Him before we ask Him to do something for us? I mean, do we give God our leftovers and ask Him to make our life situation a priority? Here, you can have my leftovers, but make me primary, make me a priority. I mean, that's the way a lot of us think. Have you ever really thought about that? Because one thing's for sure, those who put God first have a different perspective. They have a different attitude because they trust that God's going to take care of everything. And that's why they're happy to make sacrifices for God. They truly trust in God. And sometimes when I take that self-evaluation myself, I find areas where they're slowly creeping up and taking this place. And if you stop and look in your life, you'll probably find that area where it's maybe slowly creeping up and taking that place. But we don't know if we don't stop and look. It's easy to become comfortable. What we need to do is evaluate and make sure that we are those people who are willing to trust whatever God said. Would we have given that meal if God asked us to? I thought about that for a long time. That's what you can do on that. Now, uh, I'm going to move on because there's certain attitudes, I think, that go along with the mindset like this, this lived-in faith mindset. Um, and it, it, you see it in the fruit of the Spirit. This is Galatians 522. And you're going to see these attitudes. They're always going to accompany that person. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit. Now, notice here it says fruit. It doesn't say fruit of the Spirit. It's fruit of the Spirit. All of these are the fruit of the Spirit that I'm about to read. A lot of times people say, well, I don't have all the fruits of the Spirit, but I got three, so I'm good. No, no, no. It's one fruit. It's one fruit. Well, I have the patience. Okay, it's still one fruit. But I have patience. Okay, you have a stem. But it's still a whole fruit. All these combined make up a fruit. Just throwing that in. But the fruit of the Spirit... Chapter last talking about the Spirit of God is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, uh, such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, in verse 24, it sums up the fruit of the Spirit mindset. It just sums it up. It's an attitude of surrender and faith. That's what it is. It's surrendering to the power of God to provide for, protect, and preserve His people. Right? And all of the attitudes you read in the fruit of the Spirit are the polar opposite of what the world teaches. Have you ever thought about that? How much different they are than what the world teaches us? Right? The world promotes anxiety. It promotes discontentment, paranoia, self-promotion. Right? We are taught that we should love ourselves above all else. That's the way this world is. If you've ever gone to get psychological help, you don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> but if you have... One of the things they say they really stress is what makes you happy. What makes you happy? I mean, I, I remember thinking to myself, what about what my problem is? Let's not worry so much about what makes me happy. Let's worry about what my problem is. The world tells us, the world ingrains in our minds, you've got to love yourself. Right? You first. That's what the world teaches. That's not what God teaches. We're taught only to find joy in what profits us. And don't worry about peace. That's for retirement. You ever hear people talk like that? Well, I've been working 15-hour days for three years. We haven't had time for a vacation. When I first decided to go on vacation, my child was eight. Now they're 11. 
but you know we need money and we got to make sure I, you know I've got that retirement. We want to build up for a good life later, and and then one day you come home and the house is the same, the driveway is the same, your wife or your husband is the same, but it's empty. You know what I mean? It's empty because you believe the lie that joy only comes when you have peace in your pocket. That joy only comes when you are prepared to be peaceful later. Where did it come right now? That's something we're taught. We're taught that patience will give someone else a chance to advance before us. And that's the truth. As people have literally said, I'm like, you need to go pray about that. And I don't know if I have time to pray about it. I'm going, I don't know that you have time not to pray about it. You know? Listen, they tell us that, that that mindset allows others to pass us. And they tell us that kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control are all signs of weakness. Alright, now think about it. When's the last time you read in Forbes magazine or saw on CNN Moneyline where they said one of the greatest business moguls in the world has so much gentleness and self-control? Did they ever say that? One of the greatest money-making minds to ever grace this earth. They don't say that, right? They'll even praise them for being a rude jerk because they did what it took to climb the ladder. You see what I mean? The world's mindset just doesn't line up with that lived-in mindset. And all those attitudes come easy when we focus less on ourselves. And I'm talking about the attitudes of the truth of spirit. Those attitudes come easier when we stop focusing on us and focus more on God. Those things start to come into play a lot easier. And there's a peace in just surrendering to a loving God and knowing He's going to handle things. Listen, until you've been there to where you have no other resources, maybe you don't understand, but have you ever been to where when you get ready to pray, if God doesn't answer, you're in trouble. Have you ever been there? And I'm not wishing that on anybody. I have been there. But there's times when I've put things off too long and I didn't pray enough when I was making decisions, and now I find myself against the wall where God's saying, you will give me control, or you will not give it on that way. He's had to teach me this way. You know what I mean? There's a peace when you finally realize it's yours, God. I remember that peace. I remember getting up to my knees saying, I am no better than when I knelt down. But I've laid it at the feet of an all-powerful God. And I know He loves me. And I know He's going to do what's best for me. So I'm going to quit worrying about what's best for me in my mind. And I'm going to surrender it to His name. And I'm going to walk away. There is a peace in having that thought, knowing that what you're giving God, He will handle it. When you're trying to please the world, there is no real peace. Have you noticed that? And the reason is the world keeps moving the goalposts on what peace is. They tell you this is success. And you go, okay, and check your life for that. Then what happens? When you finally get to where you might get to make it, they move the goalposts. Now it's success is this and this. Well, okay, then you start shifting your life to trying to get this and this. And when you finally get those see the goalposts moves again. Well, you've got to add this. See, the world continues to move the goalposts because it never wants you to have real peace so that you will have time to contemplate God. It just doesn't want that. Always moving the goalposts. That's why, you ever notice there are people out there, I don't know if you guys ever asked yourself this, why do billionaires continue to work? Has anybody ever asked that question? Anybody? I, I think to myself, I think if I had a million, I'd quit. I'm just throwing it out there. No, I mean, not this job. I like this job. <laughs> we are going, yeah. No, but I'm just thinking about that. I told you this before, J.D. Rockefeller, who's the richest man in the world, they asked him, when will it be enough? He said, and he laughed and said, maybe when I get a little The reason that there's no stopping in that drive for people to have more and to possess more is it doesn't bring peace. 
They're trying to attain something they cannot have because they don't have the right equipment to have it. You can't get peace through having money and power and possessions. You can't get peace that way. You can't buy peace like that. And I think the reason people never stop is because they think the next million might be the peace they're looking for. When the truth of the matter is, there's a God-shaped hole in your life, and the only thing that's going to make it go away is you die. You can be worth $100 billion, and when you die, somebody else is going to spend it, and you have to answer to God. That's where our peace comes in, is knowing that, hey, I don't have much, but if you saw the kingdom, I'm going to retire. You see what I mean? People ask me all the time, do you have a retirement? I'm like, define retirement. Am I going to be living in Aruba? No. Will I be living in Florida? No. I don't think I can live in Leado. Okay? Just throwing it out there. But the retirement I'm looking forward to isn't about me playing shuffleboard. The retirement I'm looking forward to is finally going to heaven amongst all those Steelers jerseys, knowing I'm home. If you see Colts, you didn't make it. No, I'm just kidding. But that's the, that's the peace the world doesn't want you to have. Now, there's a story in Luke's gospel, I think I've got time to cover, that kind of illustrates this perfectly. Luke 19, 1-4. So he entered Jericho uh, and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was, he was rich. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable to because he was proud, for he was small and stature. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. So Zacchaeus had the least popular job anyone could have at that time, and to be honest with you, probably at this point. Zacchaeus' job was being a tax collector, a tax collector, and it was a little different then. So the fact that he was a Jewish tax collector made him hated all the more. Okay, it was a terrible job. Uh, and the reason was, the Romans, when you were a Jewish tax collector, you were working for the enemy. You were working for the Romans. You collected taxes from your own people for Rome. And here's how you were paid. Rome would say, okay, here's what I need. Anything about that, you can have. Now imagine, if the government said, I will not prosecute you, you can go out and rip people off. How many people would be ripping people off? You know? So they, they became very rich very quick because they stole from their own people. And their own people couldn't do anything about it, even though they knew they were getting ripped off because they were backed by God. Okay? So this is a difficult, difficult situation. Right? Now imagine what his life was like. Imagine what Zacchaeus' life had to be like here. Okay? The Jews hated him. They hated him because he worked for Rome. Right? He was most likely banished from the synagogue. He was definitely ostracized by the Jews. Nobody would have had anything to do with him. Most of the families would disown him because they looked at it as treason. This was his life. Right? He had nobody on that side that liked him. They wanted nothing to do with it. And the sad thing is, is he wasn't accepted by the Romans either because he wasn't Roman. So the Jews hated him because he was working for the Romans. The Romans hated him because he wasn't Roman. He was a Jew. So he had all kinds of money. His own people hated him, and his boss hated him. Think about that. This was his life. Like, this was his life. I imagine he didn't even have people he could confide in, right? But he probably heard about this man named Jesus because everyone heard about him. Right? He was preaching love and forgiveness, something totally different from what he's hearing coming out of the synagogue. Judgment and condescension. 
He's not hearing that. He's hearing this guy that's preaching love and forgiveness. And when you're a man that everybody hates, what are two things you're probably looking for? Love and forgiveness. And he hears this Jesus is coming to town who preaches love and forgiveness, a man who could look past what people thought of him, a man who could love him despite the fact that he'd made a lot of bad decisions in his life. And back then, like today, people found it easy to hate and look for reasons to love. That's something that's been going on forever, and it really bothers me when I see Christian people get involved in this. Christian people are not supposed to be looking for reasons to judge other people. They're not supposed to be looking at other people uh, with a condescending eye. We're not supposed to be trying to keep people out because we don't think they're as good as us. I mean, think about this for a minute. Jesus came, died, and rose again so that people would have eternal life, not so that we could become religious and hide in our own churches. That's not what he came here for, right? And so it's really, really important to understand here that it's really easy to just join the crowd and hate other people. It's really easy to join the crowd and be look for reasons to divide. Listen, no one says you have to agree with everybody, but God says you have to love everybody. Right? That doesn't mean like. I'm going to be honest with you, there's probably some of you out there I don't want to golf with. But, if you need me, I'll be there. That's love. Golfing with you, that's like. I reserve that for other people, but I'm saying, I don't show you love if you call. It's very, very important we understand that. It's easy to have this mindset, right? And the people who may have had some compassion and wanted to forgive him probably were afraid that people would see them as collaborators. So he probably had no one to turn to. So when he heard Jesus was coming to town, he was desperate to see him. Now remember, this is a wealthy, wealthy man. So when Jesus was headed his way, he decided to climb up a tree so he could see him because he was shorty. Luke 19 says, says, and nobody emailed me saying I'm offending poor people. I love poor people. Anyway, Luke 19 says, says, you wouldn't believe the emails. Anyway, uh, when Jesus came to the place, he looked and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down, and what? Received the hymn. Now, who's doing the receiving here? The hymn is capitalized. He received him. Who's doing it? Think about this. Think about this for a second. Okay? It says, he, Zacchaeus, received Jesus. That's what he's saying. It's capital H there. Zacchaeus received him gladly. I think we look past that. Verse 7. Because when they saw it, talking about the people around, they all began grumbling, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They say, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Okay. See, here's the funny thing. Nothing is an accident with God. Jesus knew exactly his condition. He knew where he stood with God. He knew where he stood with the people. He knew where he stood with the Romans. He knew that Zacchaeus was going to be in that tree before he ever left the previous time. He knew that. Matter of fact, I'll go as far as to say I think the reason he went there was to see him. He was the reason that he went there. He knew exactly where he was where he was headed to Jericho. He also knew that Zacchaeus was tired of the life that he was living and he was willing to handle. He knew that. Listen, when you become tired of your situation, God knows it and he's waiting for that call. Don't ever think that God is when you call upon God, seeking his mercy and his love, that for some reason God's going to shut the door in your face. He doesn't turn people away. Right? Because he knows before you utter that you need him, and he knows before you utter that you want him. 
and he knows it before you utter it, that if you're willing to accept him, he'll take you. That's how it works. So he knew right away that this man was seeking him. He knew that he was looking for him. He was tired of that life. So he called for Zacchaeus to come down uh, from the tree and host he and the apostles at his house. Then it says that Zacchaeus hurried down and received Jesus gladly. Now, the Jewish people couldn't believe that Jesus wanted anything to do with a tax collector. They couldn't believe that, right? Why would he want anything to do with Zacchaeus? But Jesus never worried about the opinions of the masses, just the word of God. That's the way it's always, always been. Jesus made a lot of sacrifices, too. Sometimes I don't think you remember, he sacrificed more than just on the cross. Right? He sacrificed more than just on the cross. He came to love everybody, and loving some people gets you hated. Loving Zacchaeus got him hated, Right? But I'm confident of one thing. I know that Zacchaeus believed in Jesus as his Savior before he came down that tree. There's a reason he climbed the tree. How many rich people you know that will say, I'm going to climb a tree to watch someone walk by? His pride was gone. Right? He was ready to believe. I think he believed in Jesus before he ever came out of that tree. And you see evidence of that conversion in the first statement he makes to Jesus. Look at this again, what he said. 19.8. Zacchaeus stopped and said uh, to the Lord, Behold, Half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Isn't it funny how he was willing to risk everything, relationships, religion, everything to be rich. And now that he's rich, none of it means anything. And now that he's uh, been delivered, none of that wealth means anything to him. The thing he worked his whole life to attain and to achieve, he had it. And when he found Jesus, it meant nothing to him anymore. Because he finally found out what real peace and real satisfaction is. And the first thing he says is, you know all this stuff that I was willing to betray my family for? All the stuff that I was willing to betray my people for? I was willing to be hated, smeared at for? Now I realize I wasted my life with this. But the rest of it's going to be for you, Lord. And I'll give anybody anything back if I choose. I just absolutely, absolutely love that. You know? Once again, you see that Jesus taught a lesson about grace from someone they despise. Once again, you see that Jesus taught that lesson from someone they despise. See, the Jews remind me a lot of the denominations we have today because they were way too religious. Right? They were way, way too religious. They were so focused on being the best Jew that they didn't become good people. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes your religion, you can be so focused on being whatever your religion asks you to be that you forget about just being a believer. You forget about just a personal relationship. I hear people all the time, they're so proud of being a Baptist or Catholic. I'm like, hey, I'm not against anybody. But I'm most proud that I'm a believer. The name I hang above my door, Christian. You know why? Because I don't believe in reasons to divide. I think you look for reasons to unite. And I think denomination does the opposite. But that being said, I've got good brothers and sisters in all different denominations around the world. But, but, sometimes you get too religious, right? And they're so focused on being that good Jew, like I said, that they became bad people. And they became void of mercy and void of compassion and void of grace and void of understanding. And if you read throughout the New Testament, the Jews must have forgotten how many times they cried out to God for his compassion, his mercy, his grace, and his understanding. Time and time again, they cried out for it, but they never wanted to give it to anyone. Right? And most of the time, it was a result of their abandoning God, like in Malachi 2, look at this, 7 verse 7. So for the lips of a priest of preserve knowledge, and then to speak instruction from his mouth, for he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the, from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. 
You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So this is in the Old Testament. Malachi is saying, listen, people should want to come to you from what you have to say. They should want to hear your words of joy and peace and words of strength from God. And instead, what they hear from you is religion that you're spewing out of your mouth and making them feel less than you. And you're condescending to them. You're absolutely walking away from the reason I brought you here, basically what he was saying. And like most people, I think the Jews forgot that believers are here to be ambassadors. That's why we're here. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are what? Therefore, we are what? Okay, edit that. We've got to make everybody think these guys are cool. All right? It says, we are ambassadors. Make that the first page. We are, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, you reconcile to God. See, the Jews' ultra-religious and judgmental attitudes actually alienated people from God. It didn't attract people to God. It alienated people from God. And here's my opinion. When, rule, when religion starts to push more people away from God than it draws to God, it's time to rethink religion. If, if your denomination is looking for reasons to keep people out, you leave. Because there's nothing about Christianity that says you stay out, we'll stay in here. It's nowhere in the Scripture. And nowhere in the Scripture. Now, in verses 9 and 10, Jesus makes it plain what is missing on the earth. And that's all I'll close with this. Luke 19, 9 and 10, he says, And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has came to seek and save that which is lost. Now, the term son of Abraham is a term that Jesus used to describe children of Abraham or people who are in the covenant that God made with Abraham, right? But it, here it was used to describe a true believer. Because, see, Abraham was the father of faith, not the father of the Jews, not the father of religion. He was the father of faith. And he believed in God's promises. And the one promise he most eagerly awaited to come through was the arrival of God's Messiah. Right? So those who believe in that promised Messiah can be the true Jews. This is the true children of Abraham. And, uh, Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 2, starting verse 28. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one. Lord, have mercy. <laughs> it wasn't up there? You had to wait? Oh, then you're okay. <laughs> Never mind. For he is a, not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, capital S, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So finally, Jesus ended verse 10 by describing the mindset every believer should have. In verse 10 it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. That's the whole reason Jesus came, is to seek and save that which is lost. And the lost can refer to the Israelites that drifted away from God, who at first he came to the children of Israel. But from the day one, it was intended to go to everyone. Remember, there was only Adam and Eve. Right? It was intended from day one for it to go to everyone who would believe. It was just intended that way. Right? So, the true believer he's talking about here, this is just the Jew, it's the one who realizes the promise that God made to Abraham, which is that Jesus would come and deliver the world. It's so, so important. You know, I think if, if that isn't first in your life and that's not first in your church, you need to do some cultivation. Because when we start drifting away from Christianity being us reaching people, we drift away from Christianity as a church. There is no Christianity without evangelism and discipleship. It doesn't exist. 
So if we want, as we move into this new project, I'm excited about this project. Because God is moving and the faith that you guys have shown has been amazing. And I know there's so many people that are excited with me for all the things we're going to do out there. I'm excited about this stuff. I'm stoked. But know this, we will stand on the same doctrine when we're there. We will still love people. We will still accept people. Right? And we are still going to do everything we can do to make sure the boys of the kingdom are bursting with new life every day. Because that's our job, and we building won't change that. It just gives us more room to do it and do it. And that's what I'm looking forward to. I'm going to go ahead and close this. I'm going to ask you what if you bow your heads and pick up your next week. This is the first service. We always have a, a time of invitation. So if everyone please bow their heads and close their eyes. We don't ask people to come up front. We don't ask you to do anything. I just want to pray for you. If you're not sure where you stand with God, you just need prayer. I don't need to know why, but I take time out of my day to pray for these places. If you'd like to make eye contact with me, put your blessed feet and put your head right back down. Bless your feet. I will be praying for you. Bless your feet. And I'm praying for you because I, I've been there. And I'm there all the time. And I just say, I just, I, you, some of you may even get texts from me saying, pray for me. Because there are times when I just need someone. Other than me, going to the church. And that would be me if you'd like me. If you're watching this online, I'll be praying for you. I always pray for us, those of us who have believed, because we have a lot to do. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your love and your mercy and your compassion. I can never understand how you love someone like me. Your grace is so amazing that you're willing to embrace anyone who can believe. My mind can't wrap around that kind of love, and I'm so thankful for your and I'm so thankful you offered it to us. He made it so simple to believe that all we have to do is believe that what Jesus did was enough to guarantee our eternal life. And if we can believe that, you promise to give it to us. He didn't ask us to be good enough, though. He didn't ask us to finish these courses. We just had to believe in the work of Jesus Christ for our own Thank you for that, God. And for someone who doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, please remove it. Because with your arms open, the same way you died is your own spirit. So that anyone that wants to come, you can make that decision for those contacts. For those of us who are believers, God, we have not done a good job. We've been too busy judging. We've been too busy being distracted by politics and things going on around us. And while those things aren't always bad, they should always be that truth. The same grace and love and mercy by the people. Let us never forget that we are never more like you than when we love and show mercy and compassion and grace. We want people to hear you and see you and 